42 today. We're going to close our service with communion. Uh, if you have never been here for our communion service, um, we are uh, a little bit unique in the way that we do it. I think it is precious. It is one of the things that we hold dear. And so let me just say to you, if you are um, new today or you've never been here for a communion service, this is what we're going to do. We're going to get done in Psalm 42, and I'm going to say, leave your stuff where it is, and let's form a circle around this room. Uh, the Lord's Supper was originally given at a table where they sat like a family around a table, and that is kind of our best representation of that, that we are a family, and we come around the Lord's table. There isn't a first, there isn't a last, and so we kind of do it that way. So when we get done, I'll ask you to do that. Now, if you're here today and you don't want, you feel uncomfortable taking communion, it's a very easy thing. It is not embarrassing at all. The first thing we do is pass around a bunch of cups. When those cups come to you, just don't take one. And then when we serve communion, the people who are serving will know that you're just observing. And there's nothing wrong with observing, whether it's you don't know that you belong to the family of God or you have some reason or you feel weird or whatever. Just observe. We would love for you to just observe. But if you're here today and you're a child of God and and you feel comfortable, we would love for you to participate and take communion with us. Um, I promise you, whatever your decision is, is between you and the Lord and no one will make you feel uncomfortable about that. So we're going to do that at the end of the service today and celebrate communion together. All right, so Psalm 42. Now, we've been going through the first book of Psalms, and technically, this is the first Psalm of the second book of Psalms. So I got here, and I was like, well, we're supposed to be done at 41, and we're going to come back and pick up a couple more of these Psalms through the summer here. But I was like, but I like Psalm 42 so much, and it's right there. So even though it breaks my own rule, and even though I know none of you are going to beat me up about it, I had to confess first that we're going into book two instead of staying in book one. And I thought, as I thought about this psalm, and you heard me read it at the beginning of the service, I thought about being thirsty this week. And my mind wandered to, like, what is it like? How do we experience thirst? How does it come across our path in our life of being thirsty? And, And I'm not sure we all can, you know, truly deeply understand, but the thing that my mind went to, and it's a weird place, is that, you know, I've never really been fully aware of my thirst the way that I was when I was about seven or eight years old and it was bedtime. (laughs) All of a sudden, I had this very keen awareness that I was desperately thirsty. If you're raising young kids, you know, bedtime equals I'm thirsty, right? I mean, 20 times. And I remember, because I always shared a room with my brother, we were only 10 months apart, so we were basically almost twins, but we, we almost always, through my whole life, shared a room. And I remember one night, because we were not allowed to get out of bed, there was none of this wandering around the house willy-nilly. <laughs> yeah. If you were put to bed, that was the end of your feet touching the floor until the sun came up the next day. That's how it was. So we were there, basically dying of thirst, laying in bed, the two of us bemoaning the, you know, our soon demise. We were about to pass away from thirst. And we talked about how brilliant it would be if there were a water fountain installed in our room so that we could quench our desperate thirst. And, and when we said it to our parents the next day, they did not seem to think that it was as brilliant as we thought it was. And so it didn't go anywhere, but I still think that was kind of a brilliant idea. However, when we talk about thirst in Uh, Psalm 42, I don't think we're talking about bedtime thirst of young people. I think it is a a thing that is hard for us in America to really get our hands around this idea of what it is to be thirsty because clean water in America is a pretty small problem. But around the world, one out of nine people today 
do not have any access to clean water. One out of nine. Like, not today, not tomorrow, not next week. They don't have access to clean water. And we take it for granted, and I don't know if you can imagine what it's like to be really thirsty, to be kind of life or death thirsty. And that's the image that David pulls out. Someone who is desperate for water, who has no idea where they're going to get water from, and they don't know if they're going to make it even survive until they get water. That image of being thirsty, he corresponds to a spiritual reality, a spiritual thirst. He's not talking about a small or ignorable thirst. He's talking about that life or death thirst. And so recognizing that that imagery might fall a little bit short for us in America, I would say to you, maybe we don't need that image as much because I think all of us experience exactly what David is trying to explain. He's talking about a thirsty soul. And I bet you, more than you even talk about, more than you would like to admit to yourself, you know what it's like to have a really thirsty soul. A soul that wonders, am I going to make it till I get another drink of water? I don't know where that water is going to come from. I don't know if I have enough water. I, my soul feels like it's shriveling up and drying up inside of me and I just need water. And so today what I'm going to do is I'm going to take David Samuel and I'm just going to ask you basically one question. How thirsty is your soul for God? How thirsty are you for the Lord? Maybe a little bit of a weird statement. Maybe that's a a weird thing for you to hear. But I'm telling you, if the creator of the universe is real... And if we are made, if we have been created to live in connection with him, then that question is very, very relevant to your day-in, day-out experience of life. In other words, if you were made to be in connection with your God, and for some reason, and maybe for a thousand different reasons, you are not in that kind of life-giving, fulfilling connection with him, you are living with a soul that is desperately thirsty, and you probably know what that's like. Everything in the Bible kind of points to this idea that we need a relationship with God and without it, we are unwell, we are lost and wandering. And so maybe when I say thirsty soul, you, you know what I'm talking about. Maybe you don't know what I'm talking about, but you know what I would be talking about if I said, you've just noticed that your life feels thin. It's just not working. You're just frustrated all the time. You, you feel like you're burning the candle at both ends and you're stretched so thin you're about to break. Maybe you know what that feels like. And what I'm saying to you is that's a thirsty soul. Maybe you're looking for some way to put your life right, to get everything in place, to feel good about your life, and you just can never get there. That is a thirsty soul. Maybe you never put that label on it, but that's the label David puts on it here in Psalm 42. This psalm is about believing that life's hardships are an inescapable reminder that we will never be okay without that connection to the God of the universe. Every time in your life that life feels like you are not okay, David says for him, it is a reminder that I can't brush away, that my life is not okay unless I am connected to the God of the universe. And so Psalm 42, we read verse 1 and 2 to start, but let's read them again. Psalm 42, 
And I keep saying David. This is not David. This is a whole different person. So uh, this is the psalmist that's writing this. So I, I make that mistake a lot as I get out of book one, which is all David, and into book two. But this is for the director of music, a masculine by the sons of Korah. So this is a group of people. And they say this, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God. As I read that, what, first of all, what you're doing is you're putting this, this experience on display. This is a very transparent experience of people who are like, I am not okay and I am desperate. And I wonder if we recognize that or if we try to hide that, if we try to brush that under the rug. I wonder how healthy it is for you to live with a thirsty soul but try to pretend that you're not. Try to pretend that it means something's wrong with you. Try to pretend that it means that it'll just get better on its own. Try to pretend that you just don't have to acknowledge it. You don't have to deal with it. You can just kind of slide it over to the side and not worry about it and put on a good show because the real big problem is somebody thinking I'm not okay. It's like when you go to the doctor and they're like, how are you? And you're sick as a dog and you're like, I'm fine. I'm good. Everything's good. Well, what's the problem today? No problem. Everything's fine. The real problem is not what the doctor thinks about you or whether the doctor thinks... You go to the doctor so they can tell you, well, you've got to do this or you've got to do that. You've got to confess your need. You've got to confess your struggle. You've got to confess your problem before it goes anywhere. But so often for us, this, this psalm pours out, I am thirsty. And we're like, but I'm not. I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Everything's good. Yeah, everything's good. And I'm not saying you've got to, every single person that comes along, just unload on them and dump on them. But I think you've got to start by being honest with yourself. Because sometimes we're so dishonest with other people that we can't be honest with ourselves. Right? Because when when it comes down to it, the reality is nobody's ever going to be without this thirst in your soul while we're on this world. Because life itself and our humanity itself makes us thirsty. We want what we don't have. We've got problems we can't solve. We long for more than what we see. We value and treasure things that are here for a moment and gone. And this is all around us all the time. We face hardships in life. We get drained because we're exhausted. This picture of water is a picture of a a life or death need. And there are times where I am aware that my soul is at that crippling moment. They knew when David says, my, or David again, I say David. When the psalmist says, uh, my soul thirsts for you, they understood what it was like to live thirsty, desperately thirsty. And so connecting that to this thirst of the soul was a deep, powerful picture for them. And so I would say a lot of us are thirsty. The problem is believers, and if you don't know God, you too, but believers, a lot of us are really thirsty, but we're not really thirsty for God, or at least we don't think we are. We feel a lack, we want some kind of answer, but that's about it. We go around in the zones of our life and we notice what isn't how I'd like it to be, what feels like less than, maybe it's my marriage, maybe it's my parenting, maybe it's my school, my grades, my achievements, my progress, maybe it's my social life, my my friends and my classmates, maybe it's my job, the thing I do day after day feels empty and kind of pointless. 
Maybe it's my finances where, where I'm thirsty for an answer or my health. Maybe it's my just sense of joy in life. It's anything and everything that makes me at unrest and feel desperate in my soul. And then we go about trying to quench this thirst. There are probably more ways that you are thirsty in your soul than I can even list. And so just like everybody else, we go on this quest to find something that will quench that thirst. And we live in a world and a culture that is resourced beyond imagination for the history of the world. I'm not saying beyond our imagination. We can imagine better resources than we have. But I'm saying over the history of the world, what we have was unimaginable for most of the history of the world. And so with those resources, we go chasing our thirst. We go trying to find what's going to quench that thirst. And the lost and the saved tend to do it the same way. The psalmist here says, I pant for God. That's the thirst that drives me. That's the thirst that I am desperate to fulfill. It is this idea of time with my Lord, with my God, with my Creator. I am desperate for connection with Him. And maybe you're here today, and whether you're a believer or not, you're like, well, that's nice for Him. That's not what does it for me. What I'm telling you is this psalm is inspired because the reality is we're all created to find that thirst satisfied exactly like that. It's not just a, what works for you and what's worth. We may have different ways of connecting with our Lord, but the reality is without a deep life-giving connection to our Creator, we are desperately thirsty and we will never find satisfaction. He says, my soul thirsts for God. And so we thirst, but we try, well, what it means is I just have to put more hours in at work and I just have to advance faster or I just have to stop trying and stop caring. I have to have a a good plan and a good scheme so I can get what I need and people will do what I want them to do or think what I want them to think. And so we're thirsty and we're trying to quench our thirst, but you can't quench it anywhere else. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. The God who is real, not imagined. The God who's alive, not a myth or a fairy tale. Where is your level of thirst for the living God? Today, right here, right now in these seats, on a scale of one to a hundred, Where is your thirst for the living God? Sounds like David, or excuse me, sounds like the psalmist here is about at 110, right? They're like maxed out. Where are you? Is it even on your radar? Maybe there was a time where you longed for God, but that faded. Maybe you never seriously considered that you actually need the living God. Psalmist here writes, my soul thirsts for the living God. When can I meet him? I want to spend time with him. I want to go into the presence of God. And this thirst, this first couple of verses really talks to, about the presence of God. I am thirsty for the presence of God. I am thirsty to know that God is here with me. When can I go and meet him? Like, how can I do that? So let me just explain this real quick. In the Old Testament, the spirit of the living God did not live in the people of God. The different times, God does different things. And so for the Old Testament, it was very different than what we experience today. If you're a child of God today, you have the Spirit of God in you. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. He walks with you down every path of life. Isn't that amazing? But our brothers and sisters in the Old Testament didn't have that. 
You know where the Spirit of God was in the Old Testament? It came on people at times and stuff like that, but then it also left them. The Spirit of God was in the house of God. It was in the temple. And so when he talks about, when can I go and meet with God? It was this idea of, I want to know the presence of God. I want to go to the place where I can meet God. And I can sort out my life in his presence. I can offer him praise. I can pray. I can lay out my sin. I can deal with my soul, the sicknesses of my soul, in the presence of my God. Where can I go and meet with him? There was a time in this person's life previously when God's presence was sweet, when they knew it was there. And maybe that's been your experience and that's kind of somewhere gone. Today, are you thirsty for the presence of God in your life? That your cry with the psalmist cry, God, come meet with me. It's not that he's left you. If you're a believer, he's in you. But there's something about the connection that's off and you just want to be sure of his presence in your life. And that thirst for the psalmist here is that life wasn't as it was before. It's changed and that change kind of feels like a loss. And that's a theme he picks up in the next couple of verses. So go with me to verse three down to verse five. It says this. My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one, with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. There is a sense of loss that the psalmist describes here. And it seems to be that this psalm was written after Israel was defeated by the Assyrians or by the Babylonians and removed from their land. They had lost everything that they owned and they had lost even uh, the right to live in the place that they had called home. And so literally it was impossible for this person to go to the temple anymore. It was impossible to actually get there. So they've lost this battle. They've lost everything. But their loss was a result of their sin. The loss of Israel, the opportunity to go and meet with God that's expressed as a thirsty soul, a cry, when can I go? And I remember when I used to be able to go, is really a reflection of you didn't listen to God. It's their own fault that their soul is thirsty and that this opportunity for worship has been taken away from them. Because warning after warning was given, prophet after prophet came to tell them to turn back to God, but they did not do it. Sometimes God gets a reputation that the God of the Old Testament is mean and angry because you read the prophets and the prophets are all about, you know, this judgment is coming and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And, And I think, I can't understand why you get that impression, but think with me for just a little bit deeper than that. Have you noticed how repetitive God's warning of judgment is for his people? Why do you think that is? Because he doesn't want to do it. He wants them to know this is coming. This is coming. If you don't turn, this is coming. And finally, when it comes, they sit there with the loss, although they were warned again and again. So this loss is specifically a loss from their own choice to do what was wrong. It's a consequence that they were told would come, but they didn't believe. So our losses can be from that. Our losses can be, our thirsty soul can be from the fact that we blew it. 
We did what we knew we shouldn't do. Now we live with, with weights and pressures on our life that we wish weren't there. Circumstances and situations, missed opportunities that we wish we could go back and set right. And so there's a thirst in my soul. When can I have what I had before? But they can also just be from life in general. The world that we live in is full of sin, full of evil, full of selfishness. People can be selfish. And that selfishness can dump itself out on you. So for whatever reason, there's loss in our lives. Maybe it's just the way the world is, just the way the world works. But, so whether you've blown it or whether life has just backed up the dump truck and dumped on you, you know what it's like to have a thirsty soul because of loss. The psalmist writes that my tears have been my food day and night. How many of us, more, more than I can count, in our church family, experience this kind of enduring sadness and grief. And so if you're one of those people, this psalm is a cry that you can take up in your own soul. And people around are like, well, you believe in God. Why are you so sad? Where is your God? Does he even exist? And that can feel so piercing. What I'm saying to you is from the psalmist here, the time when, when tears are your food day and night, the time where you're so overwhelmed with loss and sadness is not a time to turn from God. It is not a time to doubt that he exists or that he cares about, but it is a time to dive in and, and pursue for more of him. To recognize I am desperate for you. Maybe it all just doesn't fall into to, to, to your lap as soon as you feel it. Oh, there's a need. God, I need the need. Bam. Okay, fixed. Good, moving on. That's like a toddler's idea of what love is, isn't it? Parents of toddlers, isn't that what your kid wants? I'm not okay with what's happening right this second. Fix it when? Or you're going to pay. That's a toddler's idea. Like, let's grow up in our faith here. If it doesn't just fall in your lap, does it convince you God doesn't care? Or does it convince you that you need to press in? That you more desperately need Him? Maybe some of the connections that quench the deeper thirsts in our soul can only happen when we're desperate enough to pursue it for a while. In struggle, in anguish. And there are people around you like, well, why are you still struggling? I thought God loved you. I thought God cared about you. And that sounds true. But the psalmist says, listen, I'm not trying to prove God to other people. Sometimes we make the mistake, I'm going to prove God to you. You're not going to prove God to anybody. God cannot be known without faith. And faith is something we choose. You can answer some arguments, but you're never going to prove God to somebody. The reality is I need to believe it for me. So I don't need to worry about what everybody else thinks about. I don't need my argument to make sense to them. I need to know what's deeply true in my own soul and hold on to that. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. I remember how I used to go to the house of God. I remember when when my, my relationship with God was joyful. We went with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. We, we shouted out. We lifted up. It was so much fun. It filled me up. My emotions were full. I remember. There was a time when my relationship with God made me alive from the depths of my soul and now it feels like that soul is drying up. When can I get back to that connection? When can I get back to that living water? I used to have it. And that thirst, we talked about the thirst for his presence, but this thirst is for his power. 
This thirst is for God to come and do what only God can do, to bring healing, to bring freedom, to bring life in the midst of death. This is something that only the power of God can do. And you and I live in a world that is overwhelming and at times crushing. And the idea of that is we are desperately thirsty for the power of God in our life. If everything in your life just went smoothly all the time, If you walk out these doors and everything in your life goes exactly how you imagined it would go, what would you need with the power of God? Even if it was the power of God providing it, you, be honest, you wouldn't recognize it, would you? You'd be like, well, I guess I'm pretty good. I'm smarter than you and I'm smarter than you and God loves me more and that's just what it is. But when life is empty and dry and crushed, And you cry out and you cry out and you cry out. What you are really aware of is that you need God's power and you don't have the power. So the psalmist has a little bit of a conversation. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why disturbed? Put your hope in God. I still have hope because my God is still able. My God is still great. His name is the name above all names. He's never been defeated. There's nothing that can overcome him. And I know that. So God, I'm coming with a soul that is thirsty for your power in my life. And I will choose to believe that God will restore When you face loss, one of the blessings that we have as the children of God is that we will be restored. I'm not saying everything that you lose in this life will get restored, but I will say this. For believers, every good thing will be restored because of the power of our God. So he has this conversation with himself, this thirst to see God's power, and he decides, I will put my hope in God. That is an opportunity that's available to every single one of you. You decide if you believe God's work is inevitable and sure and it just hasn't arrived yet because it's not the right time. You decide if you believe that or you decide if you believe that your current experience means God won't come through. God's forgotten about you. You decide what you believe about the character of God. And a lot of times it comes from these conversations speaking to yourself in your own soul. Why am I so downcast? Put your hope in God. The rest of this chapter Um, actually goes a little bit deeper and darker. And I just want to read it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because we're going to get to communion this morning. But verse 6 down to the end of the chapter, My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. This goes a little bit further. This goes to the place where when life takes you to dark places that are dark beyond anything you imagined. Beyond just loss, places where hope seems forever gone. This idea of this word downcast has that sense in it of all I see is what's down, what's dark, what's low. That's all I see. My soul is thrown down. My soul can't lift itself back up off the ground. It is downcast. 
And then he uses this imagery, deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. Your waves and breakers have swept over me. And while you could say that that's a positive thing, that there are a lot of people that have, it really feels like what he's saying is, as deep as I go, it feels like the depths of where I am just calls to a deeper place and I'm just going to keep going deeper and deeper. I've been overwhelmed by this flood. I've been overwhelmed by life. It is catastrophic to me. And I feel like you've abandoned me. I feel like it's hard to believe what you've promised. I am thirsty for the promises of God. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I have to go about mourning? Why, am I, why are you not coming through? You said you would come through. Why are you not coming through yet? I have to remind myself that what God has promised he will do. And so I am thirsty for the promises of God. I don't know where your soul thirst is today, but I know you have it. And I know the only answer to it is the God of the universe, our Savior, our Lord. There's a way that he made for us to find that kind of satisfaction, for us to be sure of his love, and for us to find everything that our souls desperately need. And we're going to celebrate that together right now. So I'm going to ask you to leave your stuff where it is. Find a place around the room all the way across the front. Try to keep it just one person deep as much as you can, at the most two, all the way around the room this morning. The depth of your love for your Savior. That has to come out of this, what we celebrate. I know of no better way to share with you how to find hope for a thirsty soul then appoint you to the love of your Savior and to invite you to love Him like crazy in return. These moments are going to be about that. This is what the Apostle John says. He says, we love Him because He first loved us. Think about that. You didn't start this relationship with God. He started it with you. We love Him because He first loved us. Verses before that, this is what it says. This is how God showed his love among us. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for sin. Folks, today, if you don't know the love of God, this is it right here. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread like this and broke it and said, I want you to understand this is my body. This is what's going to happen. My body broken for you. As the men come around today to serve you, you're going to have to take a piece and rip it off. And I, I invite you. This is love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a sacrifice for our sin. Jesus said this, This wine, this juice is my blood poured out for you. And as they come around, they're going to be pouring juice into each of your cups. This is love. This is love. I invite you to know the love of God today. And I invite you to turn and love your Savior like crazy this morning. Gentlemen.